one sort of universal human experience, and that is that all of us will suffer. And this morning, I want to, um, I want to try to tackle this, this idea, this experience uh, that we all go through of, of suffering. Uh, we're in a series that we're calling Remade, and it's all about being made brand new in Christ. Uh, we started by talking about how God is, is, is forging and bringing a brand new creation into the world, that, that this new creation is, is both on a cosmic scale, uh, but also on a personal scale, uh, where we can move forward in faith knowing that God intends to make the world brand new. But in the midst of all of that, you and I can be made brand new and into a new, brand new creation. So today, I want to talk about a new perspective that we have in Christ. And, and I want to talk to you about dealing with suffering in our world and in our lives. And, and I want to tell you just right up front that, that there's a good chance that, that God wants to say something to you today that is going to make you very uncomfortable. Uh, God, is, God wants to say something to you today that, that will make you push back a little bit. Uh, that, will, that will make you want to take the cynic route, uh, the cynics route, not the scenic route, the cynics route. Did you catch that? He, there's something that God wants to say to you that, that you're going to push back against it a little bit. But what I, my encouragement to you right up front today is that in those moments where God is pressing you, in those moments where you feel like he's saying something to you that's uncomfortable, I would encourage you to open your heart, open your mind, hear what God has to say to you. And then I pray that whatever he says to you today, that you will have the courage to respond in obedience to him. Because ultimately, that's why we open up our Bibles every, every week. That's why we gather together, is we want to hear from God, and we want to respond to him. And so I encourage you to do that today. Now, this suffering that we all experience, that some of you may be going through right now, or if you maybe have just come out of a season of suffering, and and if, and if you're feeling like, hey, life is good and life is grand, chances are there's some suffering that waits right around the corner for you. Because whether the suffering comes by death or disease or da- disaster or, or deep disappointment, all of, the, all of the dirty D's in our life, regardless of the form of suffering, we will suffer. And, and as I see it, there's, there's sort of two typical responses to suffering. Uh, whenever we face that in our life. The, the first is, is uh, most popular among religious people. And so if, you've, uh, if you're following Christ, you've been going to church for a long time, this, this may be your sort of first response to suffering. And I like to call this the, the moralistic response. And that is to say that, that many would believe that suffering is a result of, of the sin that's in our life. And so if we could just sort of live up to God's intention for us, if we could just live a little better, if we could just do a little better job, then, then suffering wouldn't happen in our life. If we, could just, if we could just pray more, if we would just go to church more, if we would just have more faith, then, then sort of this, this idea of suffering or the experience of suffering would, would somehow avoid us or it would, it would take a curve around our life. And, and so sort of the moralistic response is, if you're suffering, you just need to be more moral. You just need to be better. You just need to do more. You need to spend more time serving. You need to spend more time praying. You need to spend more time in church. So go to two churches, three churches, four churches. Do whatever you can to do more. 
That's the moralistic approach. And if you do that, sometimes religious people would say, then suffering will avoid you. And so, if, so the first response is, if you're suffering, you just need to do more and be better. The second typical response to, to suffering, death, disease, disaster, disappointment in our life is, is the cynic's route. So on one, it's, it's sort of the moralism and the moralistic route. The other one is, is sort of the cynic's route or cynicism. And that is to declare because of the suffering that I'm going through, because of the experience I find myself in and the circumstance I find myself in, we can take the cynic's route and declare that God isn't good. Some would even say God isn't there. And if he is there, then he certainly is incapable, he's incompetent, or he's indifferent. That is to say that, that, that because suffering is a reality in our world, the cynic would say God is, is distant, he doesn't care, he's not involved. And so some, the, the cynic would often say, to hell with God. He obviously doesn't care about me. And so why should I care about him? And that's the cynic route. And the the chances are is is that in this room, some of you take the cynic's route. And you are a cynic. And that's where you're at today. You walk through suffering. You you see this uh, disease and disaster and disappointment in our world. And you become cynical. God doesn't care. God isn't good. Or God is indifferent. But the book of Job and the narrative that we just read shows to us that both of these approaches are not only wrong, but that both of these approaches are spiritual dead ends. And that's why I want to speak to you today, because we have this sort of universal experience of suffering, and we tend to go either one direction or the other. Be better, do more, or God doesn't care. And what the book of Job and what the Bible wants to show us is that not only are both of these wrong, but both of these are spiritual dead ends. They won't get you anywhere spiritually in your life. Now, this, of course, raises more questions, and questions are raised in our minds as we walk through suffering. One of the questions is, where does suffering come from? Or to personalize that a little bit, we often ask in the middle of our suffering, who has done this to me? Because in the middle of our suffering, what we want most is to be able to point the finger, right? I, I mean, if we're in the midst of, of this, this terrible uh, difficulty, this terrible challenge in our life, what we desire most is, is if we could just point the finger somewhere and place the blame somewhere, then all of a sudden we feel like we have a framework by which we can begin to deal with the suffering. Oh, it's their fault. It's that person's fault. It's God's fault. And so the, one of the first sort of implicit questions that we ask is, where does this suffering come from or who has done this to me? But that's usually not the first question we ask. The first question that we ask in the midst of suffering is why? Why has this happened? Why me? Why now? Or even when we see other people suffering, why him? Why her? Why them? And so while why is our first question, the sort of underlying question is who has done this to me or to them? 
And then, of course, the question is raised in our life, how do I live in the midst of this? Like, I just experienced death way too early in my family. How in the world am I supposed to live through this? I just hinged my entire future on going to that school or getting that scholarship or, or getting that raise or landing a job at this firm. I just, my whole life and future was hinged on this point and it didn't come through. And we experienced disappointment. And the question comes, how in the world am I supposed to live now? We suffer. And I believe that this passage in Job that Jacinda read uh, can really help us in a lot of ways to deal with and to live well in the midst of our suffering. We've had kind of a toned down Sunday, and really on some level that's very intentional because we know that we were going to be talking about a difficult subject. And so we wanted to set the tone for the passage and for the message this morning. So just hang with me. It's going to be good. But it's going to be rough at the same time. It is a poor sermon that gives no offense, right? That's my, that's my favorite tagline. Um, so here we go. What, where does suffering come from? We're just basically going to structure the message by an, trying to come to grips or try to answer some of these, uh, these questions. So the first question that we have to address is, is, where does suffering come from? Or who has done this to me. Now, again, our first tendency is to point the finger. And, and we know that this, like, we hear and we grow up. And we sort of have this feeling that there is this larger being, there is this all-powerful person, whether you call him God or whatever you call him, there's this thing out there. Our first tendency is to say, oh, if he's in charge, then it's his fault. He's doing this to me. Whether he's sort of allowing it, whether he's directly doing it, all of that doesn't matter. That's just semantics. It's his show. He's in charge. I'm suffering. He isn't good. That's usually our first response, but, but I believe that this narrative in Job teaches us some really important things. Now, let me set the scene. Satan is scanning the earth, right? And, and sort of that's just where we get. Satan is he's, he's looking around. He's trying to do some damage. He's scanning the earth, the, the narrative tells us. And then in this conversation between Satan and God, God simply says, have you seen Job? He's righteous. He's good. He loves me. Now notice that God is not saying, oh, there's Job. Go pick on him. Satan is scanning the landscape. And God, I believe, is, is with, with a heart full of love for his, for his faithful servant, is saying, behold my servant Job. He is righteous. Which right off the bat automatically uh, disproves the theory that if we're just more moral, we wouldn't suffer. Because right built into the narrative, Job is righteous. He's good. He's God-fearing. And, and, and then, so, so God is sort of bragging on his servant. He's good. He's righteous. Have you seen him? Have you noticed him? To which Satan says, only because you have blessed him is he good. Throw some of those things away, and I'll show you the true heart of your child. Now, immediately, we would say, like, what is going on? Is this some, like, sort of dirty cosmic game that God and Satan are playing on Job? Right? I mean, some of you think that you're just a chess piece in sort of like a cosmic game between God and Satan. And you look at the story of Job, and you say, oh, there you have it. 
We're just, we're just chess pieces. God, is, is sort of, God and Satan are just sort of playing us however they want to play us. But that's not what this narrative is telling us at all. In fact, to understand the narrative in that way is to miss the point dramatically of what Scripture is trying to say to us. God says, here is my servant Job. He's good, he's righteous, he loves me. And Satan says, I'll bet I can derail that train. Satan essentially says he's only, he only loves you because you've been good to him. Because in the, in the first eight verses, what we get are, are how are, is the wealth of Job. We, we understand like he's given all of these things. This is all of the possessions that he has. Satan says, only because you've been good, only because you've blessed him, does he love you. But I want, us, I want us to notice some profound points being made in this narrative. Do not get caught in this idea that this is just a game between God and Satan, that they're playing in Job's life and then therefore play in our lives. Listen to me closely. It is Satan's idea to try to derail the righteousness of Job, not God's. Read the narrative carefully. Satan is the one who is saying, I'll bet I can derail his righteousness. I'll bet that I can throw his faith off if you'll just give me a chance. And Satan essentially saying, if you'll just give me a chance, or I'll bet I can do that, shows another very profound point. God is in control of the situation. Despite the suffering, despite the heartache, God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. And that, that, that's really important for us to understand. Satan is essentially saying, let me show you what your children are really like or what they do when they will suffer. And so Satan goes about causing and performing these acts in, in Job's life, not God. God is not the one sort of generating the suffering. And again, when we read this, we, we see what we tend to see is a cosmic game. It's all God's fault, and, and therefore God isn't good, and he can't be trusted. But if we look more closely, it's Satan's idea to derail Job and his faith and to throw him off. It's Satan who is generating the suffering in Job's life, but God remains sovereign over all of it. Go back to the Genesis narrative, and we see this world that God created. The world is good. It is without death, it is without disease, it is without disaster. All of these things are not intended in God's good world. And what happens is we, as we experience death and disease and all of these dirty deeds, those are a result of sin that has entered our world. In other words, when sin entered our world, when we tried to put ourselves in the place of God, and we tried to say, God, you're in my spot, as Adam and Eve did in the garden, the fabric, the good fabric of God's world began to come unraveled. And what God is now doing in the message of the gospel is that in this unraveled and broken world, God is on a mission to begin to take this fabric that's, getting, that's, that's, that's being pulled apart and begin to weave it all back together so that, so that death will be defeated, so that goodness will reign and peace and mercy and all of these things that God intended. The gospel is about restoration, reconciliation. God is doing it and he wants to do it through us. That's the gospel. And we talked about that on Easter. And so these things that we experience through suffering and these things that Job experiences here are not intended in God's world. God is not doing them. It's Satan who's performing the acts. Are you with me? 
Now, I hope that right off the bat that that's an encouragement to some of you. As you walk through this suffering, evil is being perpetrated on you. You are being, you are the victim of injustice. You are, are, are in the midst of suffering. May you know today that God is still good. And may you know even more than that, that God is still sovereign over your situation. Because what do we see in the narrative? Yes, God allows it. He's not generating the suffering, but he is allowing the suffering, but he's still in control. A lot of times we tend to think of of God and Satan as sort of equal and opposite forces that are always at battle. That simply is not the case. God is in control. God reigns. God is sovereign. And what we see what, what he's doing here is he's even sovereign and he's overcoming the evil that is being brought upon Job. He says, Satan is like, I can derail this guy. I can, I can expose him as a fraud. He doesn't really love you for you. He loves you because of what he's gotten out of his relationship with you. If you'll let me suffer, I'll prove it. And God says, you can do whatever you want, but don't lay a hand on the man. God is sovereign over the suffering. He's limiting the work of Satan in his life. You can do this, but you can't do this. You can take his possessions, but you can't touch the man. And then at the end of this chapter, when Job responds after all of these, after he's lost his possessions and his family, and he's, he's gone through all this suffering, Job responds, may the name of the Lord be praised. And so when you move on into the narrative, Satan says, well, that didn't work, but I'll bet if I, if I brought hardship against him, himself, he will denounce you and denounce his faith. And again, God says, okay, but, he, but you can't kill him. God is always limiting, okay? God is always limiting the suffering that Job is experiencing. It's critically important that we realize that, okay? So who is... Who is the suffering coming from, and, and where, who is doing this to me? Where does this come from? It does not come from the God who is good. God is sovereign in the midst of your suffering. Can you believe that today? I want you to know that today. God is sovereign in the midst of your suffering. He is still in control. He is still good. The route that the cynic takes is a spiritual dead end. And I want to show you why. Because, so who's doing this to me? Then the, the second question is, why does suffering happen? Or why this? Why me? And oftentimes this is the first question that we get to when we suffer. Like right in the middle of the suffering. The suffering begins and our fir- the first words out of our mouth, whether it's literally or the first words in our heart, is why me? Why now? Have you ever noticed that there's not a good time to suffer? Right? Why now? Oh, man, everything was just going fine. Every, everything seemed to be going down the right road. Why now? Why me? Or we watch suffering happen in other people's lives, and we say, why them? Why him? Why her? They don't deserve that. So why is often our first question. But I think it's super important that we realize in the midst of our suffering that there is no easy answer to the question that you've asked first. This question of why are we suffering? There is no easy answer to that. 
I wish there was. I wish that I could come up here and with boldness declare to each of you the reason that you're walking through the situation that you are. But I can't. And I don't believe the scripture really even points us to answering the why question. And so if there's no easy answer, I think it's super important that we come to grips with this one thing. In the midst of suffering, we have to avoid pat answers. Have you ever heard those? Like you're in the midst of like this impossible situation and a well-meaning Christian comes up to you and gives you this really pat answer and you're like, that did not help. Right? Let me give you, let me give you a couple of examples. Your four-year-old son dies and someone says to you, God just needed an angel in heaven. And you're like, that, that is not helpful. Like if he needed more angels, surely he could just make them. Right? Have you heard that, though? I have. I've heard people legitimately try to frame a suffering on that level with a pat answer like that. And church, let me tell you, if you're trying to come alongside of someone that's in the midst of a season of suffering in their life, avoid the pat answer. Because it doesn't help. And in fact, just embrace the suffering with them. Walk, it, walk through it with them. Because the sooner you try to answer the why, you're just grabbing for nothing that's there. Because there are times in our life where we will never understand why we had to walk through suffering that we did. And so avoid the pat answer. Here's, another, here's, a, here's a few other pat answers. Not nearly as offensive as the first one. God's ways are beyond our understanding. Is that true? Yes. Is that scriptural? Yes. God's ways are beyond our understanding. But in the midst of suffering, the question we, that we have to ask is, is that helpful? I think the answering answer is no. It's a pat answer. Oh, man, you, you, you lost this person? God's ways are beyond our understanding. God just wanted to be able to use this later in life so that you could help people that are going through the same thing. Is that true? Yes, it is true. In fact, some of you are looking for your ministry and your calling in your life, and I would say that your ministry is found at the intersection of your misery. What is it that when you look at the world, it makes you miserable and it breaks your heart? That's the intersection of your, of your ministry. So is that true? Yes, but in the midst of that person's suffering, saying, God wants to use this later on, makes the person respond, what does God want to do in my life right now? Because I need some help. It's a pat answer. And I talked to you about more, the moralistic approach or answer to suffering and, and then the cynic's response to suffering. And, and these are both pat answers as well. God is allowing this because you aren't good enough and you need to do more. Can anyone say hello to guilt with a capital G? Wow, this is my fault. Right? Because, because what we want to do in the midst of suffering is we want to point the finger at someone. And if someone for you points the finger back to yourself, that does not help. And the, and the moralistic approach is a pat answer. And what the point I'm trying to get across is we have to avoid pat answers in the midst of suffering. And in fact, we have to come to a place in our life where we can embrace not having the answer 
to the why question. And so I would encourage you toward a faith that goes beyond having to answer the why and instead pointing to the who is sovereign, who is in charge, who loves you in the midst of this season of disappointment and doubt and suffering. Let's move away from the why and toward the who. Here's the cynic's response. See, I told you God doesn't care. Or this, you don't owe God anything because he's allowing this. That's the cynic's response. And their spiritual dead ends and their pat answers. In fact, I, I, I would argue this. Why, while why is our first question and the most pressing, it is also the least important. And um, do, you guys, do you guys remember, um, there's, there's a, I don't even remember, like early 2000s, uh, so like 10 years ago. Wow, I'm old. So like 10 years ago, there were these two trilogies that were being made sort of side by side. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Matrix and Lord of the Rings. Now, there was a time in my life where I would have said that the Matrix is a far better trilogy. I have since seen the light, and I've since, I've since accepted Christ as my Savior, and I've become a Christian and a Lord of the Rings fan, okay? But there was a time in my life where I'm like, the Matrix is better. In Matrix, the second one, Revolution, Resolution, whatever it's called, Matrix, that one, Reloaded, uh, Matrix Reloaded, they, the Neo meets with the architect, and, and he asks this question, why? And the architect says, well, why is often the most pressing question. It is also the least important, right? And he kind of talked like that. Do you guys remember the scene, white beard and everything? Some of you don't remember, and you're looking at me like I'm an alien. That's all right. I would say the same to you today. In the midst of your suffering, while why is the most, your most pressing question, it is also the least important. Now let me tell you why. <laughs> the answer to the why question is not as important as the process of walking through the suffering. Because if all we're trying to get is the answer to the why, then our focus goes completely on trying to get an answer to a, the answer to a question where the answer does not exist. But if we will get past the why question and enter the process of that suffering, we'll see that God wants to do something powerful in our life through the suffering. So it's not about the answer to the question. It's about walking through the suffering with integrity and with faith. Because let me tell you this. As soon as you feel like you have the answer to the why question, as soon as you feel like you have the answer, and you're, and you're holding on to it with such a tight grip, this is why I had to go through that. Then something else will happen in your life that will make you question that answer that you held so closely. There will be another situation where you look at this answer that you hold so closely to and you're like, I've got to let that go. Does that make sense? Something else is just right around the corner that will make you question the answer that you had come up with and held so confidently to. 
And I talk about walking through the process, and, and here's what I feel like is so important to the Job narrative. In Job chapter 1, in verses 1 through 7, we learn that Job is a righteous man. We learn that Job is a wealthy man. He's a blessed man. And then you have Job 1, verse 8, through like Job 45, chapter 45, of suffering, of him walking through suffering. And then when you get to the very last chapter, you realize that God restored to Job twice of what he had before. That all that he lost, he gained twice more. Listen to me closely. God only allows Satan to do as much in your life as will get the opposite result of what Satan wanted. That's why we have to walk through suffering with faithfulness and with integrity. God will only allow suffering in your life to the point of getting the opposite result that Satan, want, that Satan wanted. What did Satan want to do? He wanted to derail Job. He wanted to expose Job as a fraud. Your children only love you because you're good to them. And you see your example, Job. He's righteous, but he's also blessed. And so let me pour some suffering on in his life, and let me reveal his true heart, that he only loves you. This is Satan talking to God. He only loves you because of what he gets out of his relationship with you. He doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you because of what you give him. And so Satan wants to expose Job as a fraud, but Job walks through the suffering well and gets twice back what he lost. The exact opposite of what Satan intended. Our natural tendency, again, in the midst of suffering, is to take the route of the cynic, shake our fist at God, declare he isn't good, and then walk and go our own way. But if in the midst of suffering, we will walk with faith, confidence, and integrity that God is still good, that God is sovereign over my suffering, and that I will walk through this with faithfulness, and God will bring good to me because he's a good God. And I'm not talking about driving the car that you've always wanted to drive. I'm talking about God using the suffering that he didn't bring and using it in your life for good. Some people would say that the sovereignty of God means that everything in the world is happening just as God intends, which becomes very difficult for a victim of rape. That's, you know, our ways are not as, we don't understand God's ways. And so you mean it was God's intended intention that I would go through this? No. God's sovereignty is bigger than that. God's sovereignty is not just that he's over, over seeing the whole world and everything is happening exactly as he intends. God's sovereignty is that he's able to take the hell that you go through from time to time and work good out of it. That's a greater God and that's a greater sovereignty. Are you with me? Come on, is anybody in the church today? I'm still not pleased, but I'll move on. God allows suffering in your life to the degree in which it will defeat Satan's evil intention for you. And so if you can learn to walk through suffering well, then God can work tremendously in our lives. That's why the why question is not as pressing as you think it is. 
is because God wants to take this suffering, this evil that you're walking through, this death, disappointment, disease that you have in your life, and he wants to bring fruit out of that. Remember that song, Beautiful Things? My favorite song ever. God, out of the chaos, out of the dust, can you bring anything good? And God's answer is yes. In fact, out of these, this dust and this chaos, I'm bringing hope and I'm making beautiful things. This is the God we serve. Do not take the cynic's route and do not take the moralistic route because, because it will lead to guilt. I've got to hurry up, but I got a lot I want to say to you today. So how do I live well through it? Who's bringing the suffering? Why, the why question, and how do I live well? The first way to live well is found in verse 20 of this narrative, and that is to worship your way through it. Worship your way through it. Verse 20, part B, then he fell to the ground in worship. Job just lost everything he had. And the next thing we hear about Job's action is he fell to the ground in worship. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Let me say to you today, just because your circumstance has changed does not mean that God has. Oh, that's good. That's good. Just because your circumstance has changed does not mean that the everlasting, always eternal, always existed God has changed because he hasn't. Your circumstance has changed, but the goodness and sovereignty of God has not. Lean into that reality in your midst of your suffering and walk well through it, and that's what enables worship. You want to know how you can worship in the midst of suffering? Realize that though everything around me is in chaos, though everything around me seems to be changing, though everything around me seems to be falling apart, God is still God, and he's still good. And that's what enables our worship in the midst of suffering. Just because our circumstance has changed doesn't mean God has. And let me tell you, this indicates, these words of Job indicate that that Job has reached a place in his faith where he loves God for who he is, not for what he gets out of his relationship with him. And we need this, church. We need this. Satan was trying to expose Job as a fraud. I've said that. He's trying to say he doesn't really love you. He loves you for what, he's, he, for what he gets out of you. And really, Satan in that moment has identified one of the primary or key marks of the human heart. So often our love is based out of personal benefit, which is ultimately a selfish love. Let me give you an example. Have you ever met someone that when you met them and you, and you were kind of like, you know, everything was, was going well and uh, friendship was, was coming about and you began talking about how you might collaborate and, and maybe do a project together and, and then for whatever reason you weren't able to do it or you just weren't able to follow through and it wasn't anything personal. It was just uh, we were going to work on this thing and, and now it's just not working out and then all of a sudden the friendship ends. Right? They loved you based on what they could get out of you. They loved you based on the, their, the personal benefit of being in relationship with you. Ladies, I hope you've never experienced this, but there are guys out there that they want one thing. And as soon as they get it, they're not interested. 
their love, they don't love you. They love you based on what they're able to get out of you. And we wonder in our culture why we should, you know, there's this question about why, why, why should we wait until we're married to, to have sex? Why should we wait until that commitment and that ring and that ceremony and all of these things? This, is, this speaks to part of it. Is because it shows that the love is true. That it's a selfless love versus a selfish love. Where I'm just trying to get something out of this relationship. And the problem is, as horrified as we are about talking about that interpersonally, many of us love God on those terms. God, I will only love you for as long as you're blessing me. I will only love you for as long as things are going well. And this is is precisely what Satan wants to do in Job's life. He wants to expose the heart of Job and expose him as a fraud and say to God, your children don't really love you. They only love you based on the benefit of being in relationship with you. And what the beauty of Job is that he withstands that and his heart is exposed to be good. Now, if you read the whole narrative, there's some, some struggle there. It's not like just Job is just sort of this rock-solid guy. But at the end, that's ultimately what we find out. And I wonder if any of us, if we have come to the place in our faith, in our walk with Christ, in our walk with God, that we love God for who he is, not based on what we get out of him. Which flies in the face of a prosperity gospel, right? Does God want to bless you? Yes, he does. But is our love and relationship in, with God and for God based on him blessing us? Absolutely not. Because God has done enough already. He has sent his son Jesus that we might have life. Could we ask any more of him? I mean, God is good. And he wants to do great things in your life. And he wants to to make beautiful things out of the rubble and the dust and the chaos But let me say to you today, don't base your relationship with him on that. Here's here's a practical tool for you in the midst of suffering. I'm almost done. I've I've only got like half an hour left, okay? Here's a practical tool. Don't ask why me. Remember, that's not the pressing question. Don't ask why me, but the question is, what do you have for me? Don't shake your fist and why me, but churn your face to the God who is sovereign and who loves you and says, God, in this, what do you have for me? And seeking the answer to this is not an answer to the why question. It's not just a way of rephrasing the question. It's not just a way of sneaking in the why so that we can get the answer. Saying, God, what do you have for me is a way of opening ourselves up to the work of God in the midst of suffering. So that we'll learn to love God for who he is. And sometimes I wonder if that's what God wants for us. In the midst of our suffering, sometimes what God wants is for us to suffer well so that we can come to the place where we say, God, I love you for who you are. Other times, 
We walk through suffering, and God says, what I want to do in you and through this, and, and the beautiful thing that I want to bring out of this is I want to teach you a heart of patience. I want to teach you about forgiveness. And, and asking the question, what do you have for me, is a way of opening our heart to this reality that God wants us to walk through the process well. And so some of you right now are in this why me phase, and I would just encourage you to change that question and begin to ask, what do you have for me? God looks at Job in chapter 1 and he says, he loves me. Satan says back, he doesn't love you, he's using you. Satan is a cynic. Cynicism in the midst of suffering is the route that Satan takes. Moralism is a dead end, and a, spirit, a, a dead end spiritually because it produces guilt. I need to do more, I need to be better, I, or, or this suffering would end. Cynicism is a spiritual dead end because it denies God's love for us and our love for him in return. Last closing thought. Job is described as a righteous man. And through his suffering, he went through an incredible injustice. He didn't deserve any of the stuff that happened to him. But God proved himself to be faithful and restored to him twice of what he had before. And an innocent man suffering injustice in Job only points us to the one who suffered the ultimate injustice and the only one who was truly innocent and undeserving in Jesus Christ. That Jesus suffered the greatest injustice of all. He was brutally murdered, though he had done nothing wrong. Yet the injustice and the suffering made justice, grace, peace, mercy, and life available to you and I. The injustice that was brought upon him brought justice for us. This is what the gospel is all about. And so I would encourage us, if we want to suffer well, and if injustice is being brought upon you, could we take the model of Christ and live in Christ-like ways that in the midst of the injustice and the evil being brought upon us, could we help to end the injustice and the evil that is being brought upon someone else? And in doing that, we are living according to the kingdom of God. In doing that, we are living in Christ-like ways. Our tendency, again, is in the middle of injustice. We point the finger, we shake our fist at God, and we hide. We isolate. And I would say to you today, one step of really suffering well in the middle of your injustice is help to answer the injustice against someone else. And in doing that, we will display the depth, the power, and the beauty of this thing called the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus. 